Happy New Year to all of you. Our scriptures teach us some very fantastic things. It shows mountaintop experiences of several individuals. We think of Moses and the burning bush. We think of Abraham and Isaac, his son, on top of Mount Moriah, often called Temple Mount. We think of shepherds at night and angels show up and give them a message to go. See, the king is born. He's in a manger. Then Paul on the road of Damascus, on his way to persecute believers in Christ and right on the road. Why are you doing it? And he falls down, loses his sight, needs other people's help. The one who was persecuting believers, he is led in the band of believers. In Luke chapter 9, we have a very interesting experience that disciples had this mountaintop experience. Here these are, these disciples with Jesus Christ and they go to a mountain, literally a mountaintop experience. Mountaintop experiences don't always happen on the top of the mountains. Here, they go with Jesus. Just sit there and watch with me. Right in front of their eyes, the face of Jesus Christ shines. It's transformed. Transfiguration, we call it. And not only Jesus, but here you have Moses, Elijah, three of them talking. What an experience. Just put yourself 
in that situation. Here are humans, disciples, and watching. Jesus Christ changed. Moses and Elijah, about whom we read in scriptures, they show up. What an experience. The problem is, in the same section, we find the disciples who just had the transfiguration experience they watched, and they are walking along, and it is their plain humanity. Who is the greatest among us? I think I am. No, 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 you cannot be. I am. My friends, how many times we come from experiences of walking with Jesus, praying and other things, and we are way up with him. And then the cares of the world take over and the mundane takes on. My question, a practical one, we are just coming down from a mountaintop experience of last week, where we sang carols, where we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, All of it, including buying gifts, exchanging gifts, and everything else. But the central part of was that unto us a king is born. Yes, Christmas comes. Other experiences come. How much do I remember the real meaning of it? The real meaning and the message was given to us. By the King of Shalom, we were told that for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Shalom. The most important message 
of this prince of Shalom to his followers is to be people of Shalom individually and collectively. And I hope as we come down from that mountaintop experience thinking of the birth of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, that we will not forget. This Sunday, next Sunday, this month, next month, that that message will stay with us. Some of the Bible scholars tell us that the word or the concept of shalom appears several hundred times in the Old Testament. A well-known scholar by the name of Hugh Welchel says that in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word shalom or its message appears over 250 times. Now, I have not counted that, but I believe in. He says that 10% of the time this is a word of greeting in the Old Testament. For example, when you get a chance, read Ezra chapter 4, verse 17. Just simple greetings. Then he says 25% of the time it is used to refer to a state or relationship that is peaceful and free of conflict, tensions. And this is expressed in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And then 65% of the time, this refers to completeness. Listen to this very carefully to completeness, maturity, and especially well-being, economical, relational, physical. That's what the word shalom means. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word shalom is used. In the New Testament, the word irene, often the way it is written in Greek, people tend to pronounce it irene. It's irene. I R A Y. This is not how it is spelled, this is how it's pronounced irene. And in English translations, the word 
is used speak uh, peace. The English word, and this you would find in many writers who have worked with this, does not do full justice to the word shalom or even irene. In English, the word shalom simply means no conflict, absence of conflict, tension. We are not throwing darts at each other. Now we are at peace. Two countries have been fighting. Now they are at peace. Now they are not using guns at each other. One of the privileges that God has given me over the last 25 to 30 years is having friendships and very meaningful <clears throat> walk with good number of Jewish rabbis. Some of this started really when I was asked to address the United Nations. Just as the General Assembly opened. As I prayed and I thought about it, I wanted to talk about Shalom because United Nations is very much interested in creating peace. Good number of my friends, Christian friends, were praying for me. So some of them, very close friends, met with me and asked me, we have, or told me that they are praying for me. But their advice to me was, do not use the word shalom. Because many Middle Eastern diplomats, Muslim diplomats from other countries, will walk out on you. Because they will think you are using the term politically. I thank them for their advice and their prayers. I said, uh, keep on praying. But whether to use that word or not to use it, why don't you leave that between God and me? So two of us will work it out. He will show me. Make a long story short, I decided to use the word shalom. Before I did, I knew 12 or 13, 15 diplomats from some of these countries who I was told they would walk out on me. I met with them individually. I said, well, you know, the announcement has been made within the United Nations that I'm going to be speaking. And I'm going to be using the word shalom in its theological, biblical sense. To a person, they told me, why would we walk out on you? Because you are using it 
religiously. You are using it theologically. So, <clears throat> this has been a good experience, good journey for me for good many years now. That was just the beginning, the incident that I told you. <clears throat> so, for much of my work, this is how I have defined Shalom when I work with different organizations or different individuals. Shalom is the wholeness, well-being, and flourishing of all that God has created in its interrelatedness. Everything that God has created is related with each other. Think of a, anything that you can think of that is not related to others. If we take that message of the Prince of Shalom that he wants us individually and collectively to be people of Shalom, soon you will discover that all of our theology, all of our biblical teaching is included in that. First, let me talk about individually. Let's go to the next slide. A complete picture or story is expressed in these four ways. Shalom with God. Shalom within oneself. Shalom with other people and shalom with creation. That takes care of the spiritual, takes care of the personal or the psychological, takes care of the social, and takes care of the environmental. Because of time, I have to move fast. Otherwise, I could teach a semester-long, a year-long course on each of these, which I have done at some places. The most basic need in you and in me, in all human beings, is to have shalom with God. My relationship with him. And through that, developing the capacity to develop shalom in other areas. We are all very good 
actors and actresses, when we want to do something, even if it is somewhat not consistent with the scriptures, we have a way to rationalize things, work around some things. But when there is complete shalom within oneself, then that person, she or he, is as honest, as fair, as the person can be before God and with himself, with herself. Okay, these are my limits. Then as I walk with my friends on the road, after having transfiguration experience or watching Jesus Christ go through that, I don't come down quickly to start talking about who is greatest. I am great. I have this gift. I have that gift. I can do this. I can. If we seriously take a look at ourselves, we won't admit it. But if we seriously think of it, much of our struggles are with. Do people really know how good and great I am? How good and humble I am? If they don't know that, I'm going to tell them that. Then people will ask me, when did you do your book on humility? <laughs> to be honest with ourselves begins with having shalom with God. Then shalom with other people. Not only my kind of people who think the way I think, who look the way I look, all people are made in the image of God. When I start making distinctions and being friendly or not friendly with only certain people, I am making certain judgments that God doesn't allow me to make. Do I accept other people as God's creation? Whole lot could be said about that. I am so thankful, so thankful to have worked with our task force here at the church, spending over two years dealing with that issue. What do we think of other people? We are nice people. You know, CBC is made up of nice people. We are very good. When you show up at, show up at our church, we welcome you. Yeah, yeah, we, we are very welcoming people when you come to my house. But those of you who participated in the prayer vigils at Nelson Park, 
this in very small way was on our part an effort to reach out to other people, to work with other people who most of them didn't look like us, but they loved Christ. So they came, we all sang together, prayed together. So, shalom with God individually, shalom within oneself, shalom with other people, shalom with creation. This is the individual journey. Then not only that, but the message given to us by the Prince of Shalom on that mountaintop experience of last year, last week or so, there are things given to us to do as a community. One of the most beautiful things in reading the history of the first century church is that every time an individual or a family or a group came to know Christ, they joined other believers. What a beautiful picture is given to us. In 1 Corinthians 12. But this is how. These are the metaphors used in the New Testament. For. The church. Or the band of believers. For certain reasons, I love to call band of believers rather than church, but I leave that aside. Here are some metaphors used for the church in the New Testament. Human body, marriage, family, buildings, and then there are other that are not used very often, but are used in the scriptures. Fields, olive tree, flock, vine, and so on. But the main metaphors used are human body, marriage, family, and buildings. Some of the writers such as Tim Keller, Andy Crouch, Kathy Wood, and Matthias Bonin, some of these that I've had the privilege to work with, interact with. They talk about the community of believers or the church 
they call it this organization, this church or churches, any church, they are made of fabric of shalom. You know, just I'm sure you have probably prettier fabrics that uh, you can show and so forth. But think of a fabric. The designs and the way they are woven. Sometimes millions of threads. How they are woven together. Each thread up and down, then around other threads. And then when you put it all together, makes a beautiful design. Not only that, but the functionality of it, how it is supposed to be used. And as long as this fabric, all the threads are joined together And hopefully there is no tear. I call it the tear happens when there is broken shalom, broken relationships among the threads. We as human beings, as followers of Christ, have not only individual responsibility to deal with shalom, with irene, or with peace, but we, as a band of believers, as a community, as a church, have that responsibility to do it collectively. What are some of the characteristics that an organization or a church has if you use this concept of fabric of shalom. First of all, you'll find that the next slide will be now this will be the Churches of Community. The Churches of Order. Church of Clarity. The Church of Security. Now again, a lot could be said about each of them. The community life. I'm glad that often we try to use the word, we are a family, we are a community, and so forth. Uh, 
sometimes I say that these are good slogans. Tell me a church that doesn't use those phrases while the strife might be going on, while one group of people might not get along with the other group. But we are a community. We are a family. I hope that we, as members of this band, do our best to be a community, community of believers. I ask you to be patient with me. I have many faults, many weaknesses. Walk with me, please. Help me out. If that's the attitude we keep, then I on the other end has to be a good recipient of your advice, your help. Again, study the community of the first century church, how they cared for each other, how they brought all they had together, how they took care of each other's needs. Others' needs became more apparent. I mentioned to you my friendships with the Jewish rabbis even led me to take some courses at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. And they were very kind to me, very, very helpful. One day, they answered a question I asked often. And I knew the answer. I had read the that stuff. Why did God chose Mount Moriah to build his temple on that? So one day, the head rabbi came to me personally, called me by my last name, and said, we want to dramatize for you why God chose Mount Moriah to build his temple on that. Oh, I said, I'll be very honored. So at a set time, set place at the seminary there, in walking chief rabbi, long white beard and so forth, and then about 25, 30 younger rabbis with him, and they sat down. And so they started explaining. And uh, 
He said, you know, the reason Mount Moriah was chosen, there were two brothers. They cleaned the top of the mountain, part of it, and all the farmers would bring their wheat to be cleaned, to be threshed, and so forth. So the two brothers would do that all day long. And from every so-called customer, they would take little bit as their wages. So at the end of the day, they would put it all together and the two brothers would divide it among themselves. And they would take it, one brother would go to his side, his granaries, and he'll put the wheat there. The other brother would go on his side and he would put his chair there. And then the rabbi told me, you know what? One day, one brother could not sleep. He said, you know, it is not fair that my brother takes half of what we earn. When I get old, I have 14 children, I mean 12 children, and they will take care of me. But my brother is not even married. Who will take care of him? That's not fair. He should have more than I should. And then the rabbi told me, he said, you know what? Somehow or other, the other brother could not sleep. And he was asking the same question. Why do I take half? My brother has 14 mouths to feed, 12 children, he and his wife. And I'm by myself. He needs much more than I do. So one night, individually, separately, they made their decision. The bro one brother gets up, goes to his granary, fills his big bag with wheat, middle of the night. And so does the other brother, without knowing the other brother was doing the same thing. As they filled their bags, they walked across the threshold. And as they were walking, they heard footsteps and they thought it was intruder. Who's here? As they walked closer, they realized it was the other brother. They both dropped their sacks and they hugged each other. And the rabbi said, this is when Yahweh looked down and he said, this is where I will build my temple, where they think of the needs of the other person more than they think of their own needs.
Of course, this is not a uh, inspired story. This is uh, written, which I had read. It's uh, uh, given in Talmud, which is the book of traditions and stories that have been passed on over the years. This one comes from that, but has a very, very good spiritual or moral result. That we, as a band of believers, as a community, as a church, need to remember. How do I think of the needs of the other person in my community? Not only the financial or the physical needs, what are some of the emotional needs? What is the person going through? How can I give a helping hand in different ways? And somehow or other, the same picture that we have of shalom with God, Shalom within oneself. Shalom with other people. And shalom with creation. On one side, it is individual journey. On the other side, it is collective journey. It is our journey as a church. And I hope that God help us in both ways, individually and collectively, we be people of Shalom. I am very encouraged that a committee from our church is working on a very important area. I'm sure most of you know about it, that it's our restructuring committee or restructure committee or whatever the term you all want to use as to what kind of church we want to be. What kind of church we need to be. I'm sure they are dealing with, whenever you raise that kind of a question, we got to think of what is our vision? What are our values? What is our mission? After you have dealt with those kinds of things, what kind of vision, mission and values we have? And then, you begin to work on the strategy, priorities, and distribution of tasks or responsibilities. How should we work as a church to be the kind of church that thinks of the other person more than I think of my own. Rather than selling the house 
and coming to the apostles and saying, I'm bringing everything. This is what I sold for. But Ananias and Sapphira, they had agreed to tell a lie. Instead of bringing all of it and claiming that this was it, they kept part of it. And you know the story. They both died right there in front of the apostles. When it was sold, wasn't the money theirs? Before they brought it, it was theirs. They, in their humanity, decided that we will keep part of it and we will claim this is it. May God help us, not only, as I said earlier, in the financial area, but in many other areas, that we be truly each other's brother and sister in a way that we think of the needs of the other person. May God help us to be individually people of Shalom and collectively we be a community of Shalom where we live out the message of Shalom with God, Shalom within oneself, with other people, and with creation. And may God help us to be that kind of people. Help me, O oh God. Help us, O oh God. Let's, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for sending your son, the Prince of Shalom, as Isaiah told us. Help us in our humanity. That as we come down from the experience of last week, celebrating Christmas, the birth of the Prince of Shalom, may we, because of his message, continue to be people of Shalom individually and collectively in this area help us O God we pray in the blessed name of Jesus Christ the Prince of Shalom Amen